This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone. I'm here today with Jeff Snyder. Jeff is the head of global investment research at Alhambra Partners. I have been following Jeff for a while now, and he's the only person I know of talking about the euro dollar system, and I find the subject fascinating. Jeff, thank you for coming to this program. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And you too, Barça. Thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Before we start, could you please tell us a little bit about Alhambra Partners? Well, Alhambra Investments is a registered investment advisor based in the state of Florida. We manage uh, personal portfolios for a variety of different clients. We have some institutional services that we do consulting along the uh, same lines. Um, but what we do, what we focus on is managing risk. And we use a, a pretty unique approach to how the system, you know, how we view how the global financial system actually works. And from that, we kind of set a pretty unique set of strategies out for our clients, uh, both institutional as well as retail investments. Awesome. So let's start talking about the euro dollar system. What is it? Yeah, and it, it's, it's a great question to start with because, you know, the traditional definition is simply just a, a deposit of U.S. dollars located offshore that is outside of the United States. This euro dollar system had begun 50, 60 years ago in that way with actual physical supplies, physical deposits of U.S. dollars outside of the U.S. Places like um, Switzerland, uh, London, of course, the Cayman Islands, uh, offshore. And over time, however, as technology evolved, as the financial system globally became more interconnected through technological innovation, it became possible to form more of a network of monetary and banking resources that acted like a currency system. And so the euro dollar system as it is today is nothing like what it was when the t when the term euro dollar was first coined way back in 1960 by a guy by the name of William Clark. Uh, and so when I, we use the term euro dollar, what we're talking about really is an offshore monetary system that's based upon bank liabilities. And when you talk about bank liabilities, it gets really strange from there and, and, and very esoteric and complex stuff. But essentially all it does is it fills the role of a global reserve currency. Now everybody thinks that, you know, the Bretton Woods system broke down in August of 1971 when President Nixon closed the gold window and that what replaced gold exchange was the U.S. dollar as the sole global reserve currency. When in fact, this euro dollar system that exists offshore, because it's dollar denominated, had actually uh, superseded the Bretton Woods system throughout the 1960s. And so if we look at it today, we have this offshore credit-based system that fills the role of a global reserve currency. And that's what I mean when I say euro dollar. It's not a specific thing like a dollar bill. It's a system of monetary resources driven by the banks who participate in it. Great. And how is the euro dollar created and how does it work? Can, can you give us an example? Well, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a, a lot of ways it's the same kind of money multiplier system that's always existed, but it's just taken to an, uh, extreme levels. Um, you, simple example is a U.S. dollar deposit, a certificate of deposit or something like that, that used to be with a U.S. bank that's transferred to a foreign, a foreign subsidy of that same U.S. bank for reasons of, 
you know, return, rate of return, whatever. The money wants to go offshore. Tax shelter is part of the reasons too. And so the, the U.S. bank transfers the money offshore. It becomes an offshore euro dollar deposit, which then the U.S. bank borrows back from the euro dollar subsidiary in the form of an interbank loan. Now, once the, once the funds are outside the United States, that deposit can then be multiplied by the bank's uh, foreign subsidiary because essentially there aren't any limits on what banks do in the offshore places. And so accumulating historically, the way in which banks can create them is pretty much left up to the imagination. One way I, I put it a lot of times is that it's whatever one bank can dream up that they can get another bank to accept as a liability. And that counts as, as, as money just as much as anything else. And that's why you see a lot of, especially in the 21st century, a lot of derivatives, FX derivatives. The role that they actually form is um, this modern monetary creation in this offshore credit-based system. It's a, Milton Friedman once called it in 1969, the stroke of a bookkeeper's pen. Well, now it's not, you know, it's not a bookkeeper's pen anymore. It's a, it's a computer screen. And so as long as bank liabilities match at the end of the day, you know, I'm bank offshore, you're a bank offshore. And I say, I create dollars and you accept that I created those dollars. That's how it works. Companies and countries can get involved in this too. Well, they've been involved from the very beginning. In fact, the original euro dollar expansion in the 50s and 60s was foreign central banks trying to circumvent the Bretton Woods system, you know, gold exchange. Switzerland, for example, uh, would find itself holding billions of, back then billions of dollars was a lot, uh, but billions of dollars in U.S. currency, which they were required to convert into gold by both local and international conventions. And instead, they would start placing those euro, uh, those dollar deposits that they held in the euro dollar markets, thereby circumventing the need to convert to gold because that was becoming a, a, bar, a bigger problem for the Americans and they were trying to help out the U.S. So from the very beginning, uh, foreign governments, foreign central banks have been involved in the euro dollar market. Uh, and we're one of the reasons why it grew so fast so far in the 1960s. Beyond the, the, the 60s, it had it, it taken on a life of its own, rapid expansion, especially in the 1980s and 1990s. But yes, you know, foreign central banks and governments today operate it because they really don't have much choice. The only way that the that global trade, the global system, global financial system that's all connected together can actually work is through this euro dollar conduit. I see. So what you're telling me is that banks outside the US or even inside the US, but definitely outside of US, regulation are able to create US dollars out of the blue and the Fed has no way to control it. Uh, it's a kind of a shadow currency. Is that all right? Yeah, I think that's probably the best term for it is shadow money. Um, and, you know, because of that, there's there's really no statistics here. Uh, we have no idea what's actually out there in the offshore spaces. For example, you know, if a bank in Hong Kong does a, a euro dollar transaction with a bank in Japan or anywhere else outside the U.S., it would not show up anywhere. It wouldn't show up in any money supply statistics. It might show up um, in the footnotes of that individual or the, both of the uh, banks involved in the transaction. It might show up in the footnotes of both of their uh, but by and large, it's it's shadow money in, in the literal sense. It goes on out there in ways that we, we really can't we can't observe it directly. Uh, the way I tell people about it, it's almost like in physics. Uh, physicists discovered this thing called a quark, which was a fundamental building block of matter. But nobody's ever directly observed a quark. We know it's there by how it impacts things around it, or how it bends electrons as they move through the, the, the space or whatever. We're doing something similar with these euro with this euro dollar system, even though we can't directly observe what the banks are doing in these offshore relationships. We can kind of tell what they're doing because of how it affects the prices of currency, what goes on in certain markets. And so you can put together almost a schedule or a menu of items that tell you, you know, what must be going on out there because there's really nothing else that, that we can attribute all of this to. So, yeah, your, your original point, Marcel, is right, is this is shadow money in the almost literal sense. Interesting. 
Is it correct to say that the euro dollar system is a synthetic short on the US dollar? Because it looks like the liabilities were created, but there's no register or no knowledge of the asset to back it up. Am I understanding this correctly? Yeah, it's a, and it's a synthetic short, and we we should probably uh, uh, clarify what we mean by that. Uh, it's not short like shorting a stock or where you're betting for the price of something to go down. When we say that the euro dollar system creates a dollar short, it's not that all these various countries around the world, which are on the other end of that dollar short, are betting that the U.S. dollar is going to go down in exchange value. Quite the opposite. All they're doing is trying to match their funding liabilities with whatever assets they have, whether we can see the asset side or not. They have very real funding liabilities because, again, you know, because of the euro dollar system, because this euro dollar thing is the global reserve currency, you have to have access to dollars to do any kind of trade. You have to uh, trade real economy trade, global trade, you know, things like uh, shipping goods all over the world, imports, exports, but also financial considerations too flows. They're all, they all depend upon the euro dollar system. And so therefore, individual countries have to have the ability to access that system. And the way they do that is in short term borrowing arrangements, which makes them synthetically short these dollars. Sure. And uh, you believe that the crisis we saw in 2007 and 2008, the great financial crisis, was caused by problems in the euro dollar system. Is that right? Yeah. And I know, you know, the conventional explanation is that it was subprime mortgages, a bunch of greedy Wall Street bankers who, you know, got it, sat around in the 90s and 2000s and just decided to give mortgages to anybody with the, who could breathe, essentially. And that's, you know, I think that's what a lot of people accepted that explanation because it's easy to understand. And you, you could see that, yeah, there was something wrong in the U.S. system. Uh, the housing bubble was an obvious imbalance that made sense to people. And then you have, you know, what happened in 2007 and 2008, which seemed like a really, and, and not a real, not a whole lot of uh, answers about what it went what went on. Uh, and so it seemed like, you know, subprime mortgages, that must have been what was wrong. You know, greedy bankers, Wall Street, all that stuff that it kind of fit the profile. And so that's been the, con the accepted convention. But when you actually sit back and look at what happened in 2007 and 2008, it all points in the direction of this offshore currency system. And even the most basic stuff, I mean, talk about LIBOR versus federal funds, for example, starting on August 9th, 2007, both of those jumped, which, you know, not by, by a couple basis points, which, which doesn't sound like a lot, but in both of those places, that was an enormous earthquake. But the day after, on August 10th, LIBOR went higher while federal funds plunged. And so what we saw was right away, in the, in the, you know, basically the second day of the crisis, that banks were um, depriving the offshore system of dollar resources while hoarding it domestically. And so there was that that kind of division between that geographical tour and offshore dollars persisted throughout throughout 2007 and 2008 and the worst parts of the the panic that's what you saw this big difference between what was going on offshore versus what was going on onshore and so already we're, we're kind of wondering okay why are the, why are the offshore markets so deprived of dollars if it's just a subprime mortgage thing uh, and then you get into a whole bunch of other stuff which begins pointing in the direction not just of offshore but of offshore banking capacities you know spreads that went all sorts of crazy, you know, swap spreads, any number of things, credit default swap prices. And the way the Fed itself responded, by far its largest response to the crisis was through its foreign uh, dollar swaps with foreign central banks. And you have to ask yourself, well, why was the Federal Reserve doing that? What was it doing with these foreign dollar swaps? Why did banks in other places around the world, why were they so desperate for U.S. dollars that they were going to a bank and saying, hey, you need to go knock on Ben Bernanke's door and get me some U.S. dollars? And so there was 
there's, you know, there's any number of evidence, indication, prices, data, whatever you want to, I mean, it's, it's pretty, in my mind, it's pretty conclusive that what happened in 2007 and 2008, you know, maybe subprime was a catalyst that got the banks to start to think about things more, think about risks in, in more, uh, in more heavy fashion. But I think overall, it, everything points to this offshore dollar system as not just the reason for the crisis, but why it became so bad. And oh, by the way, you know, over the last 11, almost 12 years now, since August 2007, the thing has never gotten fixed, um, largely because nobody knows it's there. Again, we go back to shadow money. Uh, it's literally in the shadows still, even after what happened in 2008. You know, people were, were only too happy to say, yeah, it was subprime mortgages. Ben Bernanke fixed it all with a, with a couple of QEs and everything is fine ever since. Okay. So do you believe the Fed did the right thing, increasing their balance sheet from $800 billion to $4 trillion? Is that uh, an uh, adequate response? No. And in fact, it was an antiquated response. It was looking at the system from the point perspective of 1950. Uh, the Fed has determined, has especially studiously avoided anything about defining and the monetary system. And this goes way back. Uh, this is one of the things that most people have very uh, a lot of trouble wrapping their heads around, is that the Federal Reserve and indeed all central banks around the world have given up on money a very long time ago. In the 1970s, it was called The Case of the Missing Money by an economist named Stephen Goldfeld in 1976, who published a paper that basically summarized what everybody was thinking at the time, which was the traditional definitions of money, even the deposit definitions of money, things like M2, those were already obsolete in the 1960s because the way in which banking worked, not just globally, but even domestically, had evolved. Uh, corporations were using things like repurchase agreements in the way that we use checking accounts, but that repurchase agreements fall outside of the traditional definitions of money. And that's you know, that's just the beginning. There's so many more different conventions, some transactions that banks were using in the 60s and 70s that were not being picked up by the traditional definitions of money. And in the 1970s, especially as the stuff all got went into the shadows offshore, was central bankers kind of threw up their hands and said, you know what, we can't define money. Therefore, you know, we have to change the way we operate. And so that's why central banks Banks have moved from a monetary a monetary policy based on money to monetary policy based on expectations. And because they did that a very long time ago, a couple things happened. First of all, this offshore system grew and grew and grew without anybody checking to see what was going on out there. Because, you know, again, we can't define money, therefore we don't care about it, which was uh, what one economist called the doctrine of benign neglect. But the second thing was that, you know, in a crisis, who's responsible for all this offshore money that we can't define? And the answer is nobody. Uh, in fact, several prominent economists and former policymakers throughout the 60s and 70s warned repeatedly that this was going to be the problem. We have this offshore monetary system that we don't keep track of. The banks just do whatever they want. You know, there's very little constraint on what banks are doing in this offshore system. And there's nobody there to step in should it all start to go wrong. And prominent members of the Federal Reserve in the in 1960s and seven were saying, hey, you should probably pay attention to it. But convention in the central banking community, especially in the 1980s and forward, said, we don't need to do any of that stuff. We can't define money. Therefore, we're not going to even bother to try. And the problem with that, obviously, is when you get to something like 2007 and 2008, you think you've got it covered, but how do you really know? I mean, you, long ago, you gave, up the, you gave up trying to define money, and then all of a sudden, you have a monetary disruption. How do you know you can actually be effective in fixing it? Well, we have our answer. I mean, the very fact that 2008 even happened already, or we should already suspect that, hey, maybe the central banks aren't really doing what they're supposed to be doing. Maybe they don't know what they're doing. When you look at some of the details of what happened in 2008, comedy of errors, uh, things like IOER, which was a total joke, it, it became very clear 
that the monetary system had evolved decades ago and central bankers hadn't kept up with it. And that's, you know, if you really look at, at the at the response from just a general term, you know, for a general overview, that's kind of how it looked. And that's how the, the, the crisis progressed. It was as if these guys had no idea what they were doing. Everything they did, nothing worked. You know, there was one program after another. They invented all sorts of stuff, nothing that actually worked. Uh, and so, you know, back to your original question, you know, the balance sheet expansion to me was nothing more than uh, how much they had to try to experiment to try to get to try to get something to work. You know, like do one thing, then another thing, then another thing, then on to another thing and then another thing and nothing ever worked. And so they just kept going and going and going, hoping almost just by fingers crossed and praying to God that just something might work. So, <laughs> no, it was not an effective. I mean, just again, you know, the very fact that 2008 happened shows that it was not an effective uh, policy in place. Sure. So why is there no one talking about it? I mean, it's a very important, huge market. We are talking about trillions of dollars, but no one seems to be noticing it. Only you. Well, it's taboo in a lot of respects. Um, and also, again, you know, we're talking about shadow money. Not sh It's money that's, that's impossible to define. So therefore, you know, the starting point is already this is incredible incredibly complex stuff. And so that's already an impediment to just a casual observation of what's going on out here. But more than that, we're taught from the very beginning that we don't need to worry about any of this stuff. You know, Alan Greenspan is the maestro. He's a genius. He's got it all under control. The central bank is central. They, if any, if push comes to shove, they'll fix whatever they need to fix. We don't need to worry about money because central banks have it covered. And so even from the very beginning, there's inertia or incuriosity about how the system actually works. Um, and, you know, a bigger part of it too, coming from the inside, side, um, economists at central banks use what are called dynastic st stochastic general equilibrium models. They do this for everything. It's the basis of all every central bank around the world. And you cannot have an undefined monetary input in something like a D DSGE model. And so even admitting something like the euro dollar system work, uh, the euro dollar system, the shadow money exists, invalidates the way in which central banks actually work. And then you have the problem of, okay, is, is Ben Bernanke going to get on TV tomorrow and say, hey, you know, we stopped being able to define money in the 1970s. I mean, <laughs> he's just not going to do that. I mean, that would just open up all sorts of questions. Like, well, you know, what the hell have you been doing over the last 40 years? Uh, and so it, there's a lot of different reasons. But uh, by and large, what happened was in the late 70s in particular, U.S. officials, they used to talk about the euro dollar quite a bit. This used to be actually, I mean, there's testimony in Congress, all sorts of things. The euro dollar used to be a very big topic of conversation, as it should be. I mean, the 1970s, the great inflation was a period of monetary imbalances. And so people were actually curious about what was going on in the monetary system. But in the late 1970s, officials decided that this euro dollar was nothing more than an, an odd investment choice for banks. They, they took it out of the definition of money because they said, looking at it strictly from certificates of deposits, which was its earliest format, that it could only be a store of value and not a medium of exchange. Therefore, we don't need to treat the euro dollar as a monetary system. And they didn't. From the 1970s, late 70s forward, the, the euro dollar was just a bunch of CDs that banks used to invest in. And so all of the stuff that happened beyond that, where these euro dollar bank liabilities did become a medium of exchange, that all happened again in the shadows outside of the official recognition. Even though the Reserve could not define money and stopped even trying, all that stuff still took place anyway. And because it happened outside of the official circles, it, it's, it's, it's as if there's a, a total prohibition or like the subject is the subject itself 
is just taboo. This is like Alice in Wonderland, Jeff. It's a whole new <laughs> world opening in front of our eyes, and it could explain many things. This, this one rabbit hole after another. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, uh, it could explain many things, like the, the dollar and gold relationship. Sometimes they move together, sometimes they don't, and so many other correlations. Now, many people say that China, despite its huge reserves, is very short in U.S. dollars. We hear people like Kyle Bass saying that China will have to devalue their currency. Do you have any views on the trading war and potential implications uh, based on this euro-dollar system? Yeah, China has the biggest dollar, synthetic dollar short that there is. In fact, the larger you have, the more of a dollar problem you potentially have. It's what I call the nightmare scenario. So China has stockpiled all these reserves that people don't understand what they are. Uh, in traditional economic theory, especially after the Asian flu in 1998, what these countries or what economists and central bankers decided they should do is stockpile reserves as insurance against a U.S. dollar funding disruption, this euro dollar system disrupting funding mechanisms for the various local banks. But what you find is that the more that the each of these, these countries stockpiled reserves, it was because they had a bigger and bigger dollar funding issue. And that was all fine and good up until 2008. In, in China, it was fine up, up, up until about 2013. You started to see some of the problems develop in 2013. And what ended up happening is, is, is the global economy failed to recover and the Chinese and emerging markets and Chinese economy became more risky as a result, uh, dollar funding became even more even more difficult to their basis. Uh, that's why you had an eruption in 2014 and 15 and 16. And what that forced the Chinese officials to do was to, quote unquote, sell their, their reserves or sell their U.S. treasuries, in effect, to try to subsidize local banks and their dollar dollar funding issues. You know, it's, it's essentially we have we, we have some dollars off to the side. You can't get them from the euro dollar market. You need them because Chinese corporates are out there buying and selling goods on the on the global markets. Uh, there's there's capital flows that need to be funded in both directions, although going in one direction. And so, you know, Chinese lo Chinese local Chinese banks were, had to have dollars that were becoming increasingly hard to source on the euro dollar market. And so the PBOC, the country's central bank, would step in by selling reserves to try and supplement what local banks were finding more difficult on the euro dollar market. And that's why you saw, especially in 2014, 15 and 16, I think the total is almost above 900 billion just disappeared from the reserve stockpile. And that was because of difficulties in the US dollar, the euro dollar system. And consequently, the price of borrowing US dollars in the euro dollar system went up, which is the dollar's exchange value rising against Chinese yuan, which fell uh, as a counterpart. So we fast forward to 2018, we start to, we start to see the same kind of funding problems develop again. And sure enough, we have reserves, although reserves falling out of the Chinese hands, though not quite at the pace that they were in 2014 and 15. And again, Chinese quote unquote devaluation, which is isn't really devaluation, it's this short squeeze in the euro dollar market. So the Chinese are very vulnerable to the US dollars or the euro dollar systems, you know, the condition of funding sources, what's available out there in these shadow Interesting. So how can one position his or her portfolio to take advantage of the things discussed in this podcast? Well, there's there's a lot of different ways to do it. And it's, it, it really depends on, on uh, your view of um, risk tolerance, things like that. Uh, generally speaking, and just talking in overview, when, you, when we have these euro dollar squeezes develop like we have since the beginning of last year, it's, it's a, you know, quote unquote, risk off process where you want to be more defensive. Uh, you want to you be more hedged, less risk 
risky positions, things like U.S. Treasuries. You want to be long duration, um, long things like euro dollar futures, which are pretty pretty well correlated with funding conditions and liquidity risks that are being perceived out there in the shadow system. Uh, things like gold. Uh, gold can be very volatile during these periods because gold is also used as collateral in offshore repo markets. And when it's used as collateral of last resort, it tends to depress the gold price, uh, which may be somewhat counterintuitive to most people. But gold is, overall can be a, a pretty good hedge against these liquidity pressures, particularly when they, they, they become serious enough that they, they create economic problems worldwide, which is kind of what we're seeing right now. Interesting. Jeff, once again, many thanks for coming to this program and sharing your insights with us. It's a pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, Marcel. And uh, we'll, we'll keep in touch. Absolutely, Marcel. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support, and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast. Thank you.